Stephanie today, who is a sensory designer. You have better words for it that I always mess up. But so just introduce yourself yeah. and tell us what you do for people. Sure. Yeah, I'm a sensory interior designer, which is a niche that I'm creating for myself. I design for people who are highly sensitive and neurodiverse. There, because there's a lot of overlap between people with sensory issues and people with different brains that's called, they're called neurodiverse. That includes people on the autism spectrum, people with ADHD, um, anybody with uh, sensory processing issues. And that also includes people who are challenged with chronic pain or with any kind of disability. Basically, I focus on helping people make spaces functionally accessible no matter what your nervous system or your brain needs. And so can you also define um, pe like highly sensitive people? Because we, I talked earlier with someone who talks about that as well and it's very new to me, so I would love to hear how you define it as well. Yes, being a highly sensitive person is something that I, discovered I was when I read Elaine Aaron's book, The Highly Sensitive Person. And this was sometime in the mid nineties. And I was working at a library and I picked it up and I was, I did one of those, Ugh, I'm not highly sensitive. And I took her test and I scored 99th percentile for high sensitivity. Okay. Which was a huge revelation because until then I had never understood that most people were not, did not experience physical pain when they were in a nightclub with loud music. That most people were totally unaware of emotional tension in a room. Like if I'm sensitive enough that if anybody in the room is upset about anything, I cannot relax until I have figured out what I am going to do about it, which includes figuring out that I'm going to ignore it. I had no idea that most people don't even notice these things. Things like smells, um, things like different kinds of lighting, um, different sounds, um, anything that I, that my nervous system can perceive, I have to figure out how to cope with that. And and according to Elaine Aaron's little test, which you can go, you can take it on her website, I'm sensitive to all of these things in all, in all areas. And so although my level of sensitivity doesn't cross over to basically being unable to think when I'm like under fluorescent lighting for some, uh, for some reason, or, um, not being able to track a conversation in with a lot of ambient noise. I'm sensitive enough that if I'm around people that do have those problems, I can pretty much figure out what their problems are and figure out ways to mitigate those problems. So according to Elaine Aaron, it's about 20% of people identify as highly sensitive. In my experience, I think it's at least that and probably more when you add in all the different kinds of sensitivities we have and also including um, disabilities, uh, pain and um, hearing loss, other kinds of things like that. I mean, I think we're, we're creeping up to at least a third of humanity has some kind of sensitivity that uh, really should be addressed in their environment. 
So what led you to creating spaces and designing spaces around that? How did you take that journey? Yeah, well, um, I was a fine artist for 20 years. I was, you know, I went to art school and I um, opened some galleries and I did the whole New York art world thing. And um, around about the time that the economy melted down last time, in 2008, <laughs> I had my daughter. <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm familiar with this. I've been here before. Um, my daughter was born right as the market was tanking. Uh, I was living in New York. I was struggling as an artist. And I took a look around, and my art was not supporting me. It was certainly not supporting a family. And I had gotten enough behind the scenes in the New York art world that I realized it was basically a money laundering scam. No joke. And I walked away. I was like, I was never going to do it, but I was like, this isn't, I can't make this work and it's going to be harmful to my family now if I keep trying. So I ended up moving to Philadelphia and I had been supporting myself as a massage therapist for the last 15 years. And I decided to learn some business skills because there were no jobs, particularly not living wage jobs for a, for a single mom. And um, as I was learning the business skills, I was learning marketing. Um, my massage clients started seeing my work in my office and seeing my office and hiring me to design site specific uh, murals and designs. And the first person that asked me to do that, I said, no, I'm not doing art anymore. And she said, uh, here's a deposit. And I'm like, yes, I'm doing art. <laughs> Turns out that was the motivation I needed. It's really nice to get paid for um, doing what you love to do. So as I was developing my massage business, I realized two things. First of all, that I was way more interested in figuring out what the building was going to look like in my huge new wellness center than I was about actually like building the massage empire that I was intending to do. And that when I worked with my clients on these projects they were hiring me to do, it was what I was born to do. It was a combination of understanding my client really well, that I, you know, I, I understood their temperament, their personality, and understanding their space, like understanding like what the ceiling height was and the, and the, um, the latitude and the window size and what they're doing in the space and what their vision is, and also understanding aesthetics. Like I would get a client say, they would have this brilliant creative idea I had a client who wanted me to paint her staircase risers and she wanted to, she wanted it to feel like her living room was underwater and the staircase risers were like waves. And I was like, yes, I can do that. But the specifics of the aesthetics, I could create a design that would work for her space, for the colors she had picked and you know, everything that she could conceptualize, but I could actually get the details right. And I would have other clients come to me with an idea saying, well, I want to do a mural. It's a self-portrait that's of this and this struggle and this, and this thing and this changing thing. And I was like, okay, visually speaking, that is not going to work. But spiritually speaking, 
I can get the energy of what it is that you want. And I can do a visual design that's going to have the spirit of what you just described to me. And I, we would do it that way. And so I could translate their ideas to their space in a way that really functioned aesthetically. And it was using all of my skills. It was using both the skills I had working with massage clients and really tuning into another person and understanding their body and their mind. And also my aesthetic skills that I had spent 20 years honing, getting the color right. You know, I had spent, you know, literally 20 years staring at canvases and changing the color a little bit and noticing how that works and hanging a painting on the wall and noticing how the light works and how it relates to everything else in the room. And so getting those things right was really obvious and fun to me. And it was things that my clients could see once I pointed it out, they're like, Oh yeah, that's working. So I had all of those skills. Okay. So when you're doing that for people in their homes and you're working with people who you know, like you just said, temper, have different temperaments, have different needs, have different sensitivities. What are things that like people don't think about when they're trying to and create space that works for them, especially for working at home, since that's what everybody's doing right now? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, a lot of people, see the brain works in, in an interesting way. Your brain can only hold six or seven pieces of information in your working memory in your RAM at any one time and however if you have a lot of experience in a field like aesthetics or painting or really any field your brain starts bundling that experience and so your brain can hold a whole lot of information by sort of packaging it and when someone has not ever thought much about their space, about color, about what an office looks like, because they've always walked in and there's your office. Okay, here's my desk, here's my cubicle, here's my chair, here's the computer. That's what an office looks like. And so they just walk in and they do their job. And then they're like, okay, you've got to do this at home. So what people do is like try to replicate the cubicle at home. And it's uncomfortable, the lighting isn't good, ergonomics aren't good, and they have never really had to think about what works for them, physically speaking or aesthetically speaking, and what the difference is between your home and your work environment. So they're really, they're, they're, you're in a position where you're you're being asked to paint a masterpiece and like you're managing stick figures. Okay, well here, I think I'll put my desk here again because there's space for it. And then put my laptop down here. And then after two days of work, I had a client do this. After after a week of working from their laptop in front of their window, they're like, my back hurts, my neck hurts, my hips hurt. I like my head hurts, I'm miserable. And that's when they called me and said, what do you know about ergonomics? And I had to ask a lot of questions like, okay, why are you wanting to know about ergonomics? What's your current setup? What does it look like? Send me photos. Where are you hurting? Because that's what I ask as a massage therapist. And 
once they sent me the photos of the space and once they told me what was you know where the pain was in their body i was like oh okay well first of all you can't be sitting against the window because the glare is causing problems let's try turning to the side oh the laptop is is too small you're crouching down let's let's lift let's get a cheap monitor and lift it up higher since we don't have the desk is too low but there's a table or the desk is too high but there's a table here let's stack the short table with the keyboard and the tall table behind it to raise the monitor and suddenly they're like oh i feel so much better thank you so much and it was that I was looking at a lot of things that I've seen before and mapping it onto their specific problem. And because they had not ever had to solve that type of problem before, there were a lot of things that they weren't seeing. So, so are you seeing a lot of people trying to copy the cubicle and just stick their laptop? trying to do whatever. I mean, we just, we do what we know. And we do what we have within the range of resources that we have. And because, you know, the, the person that contacted me was like, well, they're not giving us a budget to set up a home office. I'm like, okay, having worked as an artist for 20 years, I'm great with no budget. I am the person <laughs> who jumps out of the car and jumps into the dumpster and pulls things out of the dumpster because that is how I get my supply. So we will figure out what there is to work with and I can also help you identify what it is you're lacking and then figure out the best and cheapest way to get that thing so that you're not spending too much money on the wrong thing or you're not just buying things to try and solve a problem when you possibly already have what it is that you need. So when you're prioritizing like that, how do you generally start? Like, what do you, is, is there a general rule for what to recommend that people maybe focus on that will give them the biggest impact well, on really i have to ask a lot of questions because everybody is different the biggest mm -hmm. however the biggest thing that i have noticed that people do is not bother to fix the little things because they are convinced that they need to fix the huge thing i can see that being a hat like a crossover to a lot of areas <laughs> that that is the number one mistake that I find people make is that I will walk in and there is they have plugged in some piece of electronic equipment and the cord is too short and it's a trip hazard and I'm like fix that trip hazard and they're like oh yeah yeah I'll get around to it and I'm like we are going to fix the trip hazard now and, and we get out the extension cord and we plug it in and when you take away the little obvious irritations suddenly it frees up a lot of bandwidth to focus on other things like your brain only really has as i said can only hold those few things in working memory at any one time and if three of pieces of working memory is don't trip over that cord <laughs> don't stumble over that pile of crap that you have next to your chair and tune out the power drill that your neighbor is using that's real <laughs> that doesn't leave much bandwidth for doing the things that you actually want to be there to do 
So if I can, if I can say, okay, look, we have like four major irritants right here. And I know that you, you're powering through, but if we can eliminate two of the major irritants and mute the other two, you're going to have a lot more mental resource available for doing other things. But I have literally, because I work also with neurodiverse people, including a lot of ADHD, there's also an executive function challenge. I literally had one colleague once, we were sitting down and um, brainstorming about, she wanted, she, said she was an artist and she wanted to start making art t-shirts. And so she's like, okay, I'm gonna make a prototype of this, of this t-shirt. And I'm like, great, let's, let's write down our task list. And the first thing she wrote down on her to-do list was take down wool. And I said, okay. That's a big one. You don't need to remove a wall in order to make a t-shirt. And she's like, yeah, yeah, you're right. But because of the way her brain worked, she would she would free associate and she's like, okay, I gotta get that wall down because I've gotta like set up a, a t-shirt press and I've gotta do all this. And I'm like, no, I'm gonna make one t-shirt. First design, you know, the first task is pick design for t-shirt, not take down the wall. But we do that to ourselves all the time. We think, okay, like this space isn't ergonomic. My chair, like I'm, I'm like leaning in right here because my uh, my chair is a little higher than um, uh, than it, it should be for for this uh, for this Zoom conversation. So you know I can get really worked up about oh, I've got to go get a new chair, I've got to get a new table, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, okay, well let's just organize it like this for now, and then this is this is step one. Okay. We'll keep tweaking. <laughs> We're gonna keep tweaking, but fixing the little obvious, the low-hanging fruit can give you a lot of information and it can sort of help make the next steps a lot easier. That makes a lot of sense. And also what you said about just free associating things that I need to do all become part of this process. And then it's like, oh, you never get done with the original goal. Right. Um, that's, I've never heard that defined quite that way before, <laughs> but I love it. <laughs> So what do you, but you don't just work with office spaces, right? So, right. I know there's a lot of overlap right now and it's bleeding through. And so what advice would you give for people that are maybe like me and all of a sudden having to host two people in their office space inside their apartment that was not designed for two office right. spaces? Right. Really what I like to do is sit down with people and decide well first of all notice things like um noticing where your light is coming in at one at, at which time of the day you can start to map a day which takes advantage of the good light at times of the day when you need to be awake and alert and the restful light at times of day when you need to be able to relax so first of all, I'll start, start mapping your daylight, but also identify spaces that are for certain purposes, and that purpose determines what 
energy level you're going to have in that space. Like for like example, working in bed. <laughs> well, yeah. It, or, or only do certain types of work in bed, like figure out, um, what energy level is suitable to a certain task and then figure out what area is most aligned to that energy level and to that task. So it's like this great big multi-dimensional jigsaw puzzle, but it's really about really understanding yourself and then understanding what it is you, you need, what it is you want to accomplish, and then identifying spaces that are best suited to accomplish that thing for that person at that time. Now, a lot of things are gonna need to serve a whole lot of different purposes because you're smushed on top of each other. But if you can start delineating areas, then it's more possible to get away from one another and still be functional in the place that you are separated and then also have spaces and times where it's comfortable to be together and be taking advantage of that. But really, I think being explicit and really delineating, okay, this area is the, the quiet room for intense focus. This is the, how it's set up. These are the rules. This is the time of day. <laughs> and, and then sit down with your partner and like, okay, I have to do this call at this time. Let's like, it looks like you have reserved your room by the window with the armchair for this Zoom call. I did, we trade. <laughs> right, and that, see, that's a great adaptation. Like if you can like have some places that you can swap out and match up your calendars and it's like, okay, I'm gonna need to like be talking. So here's the room that I talk with people. It's got a good Zoom background. Here's the place that's, you know, that, that's quieter and I can, I can um, be on the computer. And then, you know, at the end of the day, like the kitchen is the place where we get together and talk and have a glass of wine and play music. That's awesome. And I love what you said about following the light too. You mentioned that before when we were on the phone, we were on a Zoom call and you had followed the light into a particular room. That also yeah. seemed really useful for when you're looking or trying to choose a place, mm -hmm. like thinking about the light ahead of time so you don't have to adapt as much later because you've already chosen something that you like the right. light of. Right. And you've, you figured out what time of day it's not going to work because you don't want to be backlit if you're on a zoom call. But I mean, a lot of people when they're under stress, they have sleeping problems. And if you can intentionally be spending time next to a window with a lot of natural light first thing in the morning, um, and then follow it around during the day, like you're, it's going to be easier for you to get to sleep that night because your circadian rhythms are going to be responding to that light. So it's, you know, it's, it's, we're, we're all under so much stress at the best of times we're going to be having these problems, but you can at least structure your space and your habits so that you're, you're helping yourself rather than working against nature. That makes sense. And just give yourself a fewer hurdles each day. Right, exactly. <laughs> just, just make it that much easier. It's going to be hard enough. You don't need to make it harder. <laughs> that's, that's very true. Yeah. That's 
So what are you doing right now to work with people online and virtually? I am scheduling virtual space triages where I schedule, um, I set aside 90 minutes for a consultation. And uh, I make this in video and really it's surprising how similar it is to working with people in person because the first, the discovery is just about me finding out all about you. And that includes um, your relationships, your physical health history, your mental health history, and your space, and what it is you need to do in the space, and the other people involved, and what they need to accomplish. It's, it's a whole lot of information gathering, and Find, I mean, and then asking, where do you hurt? Uh, in all of those respects, like, are you struggling with working remotely when you're a teacher and you're used to being with the kids? Are you struggling with figuring out how to focus when you have your son in, in this room playing video games and your husband in this room who's a nurse needs to sleep? There's so many aspects of your life that you know anybody can like set up a table and a desk but getting a bigger picture about what your needs are and what the potential friction points are and then figuring out creative ways to set things up that really work for you you don't necessarily have to have a desk right now i am sitting at my kitchen table with my tablet propped up onto a vase where I'm rooting a cutting. Um, I have a desk, which I spend sometimes four hours a day there, sometimes two, sometimes none. But there are lots of places in my house where I could be productive, depending on whether my daughter is at her, in her classroom or whether she's like down lounging on the couch and talking with her friends or wrestling the cat. Like I have a whole bunch of options. And so for my clients, figuring out what your needs are and then figuring out what your options are, maybe the ones that you haven't thought of, that's, that's the next series of steps. And then each of those options is gonna require a little bit of, of love and adjustment. And, and so figuring out what the easiest thing to do first is and then sort of how to build on that over time. I end up really doing a lot of sort of ongoing coaching, which is less about, you know, finding the right couch, which a lot of interior designers do, which I can help you do. But do I really need a new couch? Actually, no. If I just get rid of one of my couches and cover the other one with this really nice textile, I don't need the couch and I have more space. So really kind of helping you figure out those little problems is what I really enjoy. And that's what my clients seem to get the most benefit for from. Just overcoming the problem as they come up. Right, yes. And you know, when you make a change, like you're gonna get more information, like other things come up. And so like mapping, getting this huge grand plan and then just going and executing, that, that rarely works. But with highly sensitive or neurodiverse people, that really rarely works. So it's really about like, okay, how, how did that last adjustment work? What's coming up for you now? 
what's our top priority to do next? And always just, just checking in with people and like taking them a little bit further. So you don't like slide back to ground zero. Like, okay, okay, we've got this level of structure, this level of organization, this is working, this not so much. Okay. Next thing we're going to tackle is this. I love that you're treating people's spaces, you know, as organically and like living as their life. It's not a showroom that you set up once and then you're like, right. oh yeah, it looks good now. All right. Peace out. Like, oh yeah. All those photos you see in the magazines, like they have a team of people come in and set that up. No one actually lives in that space. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I don't have too many photos of my clients spaces because they live in them. And I rarely take the, the time and the trouble to like, set a date and come up with a photographer and style the whole place and take photos. Like I'm, I'm, you know, too busy sort of working with the, the next challenge, but yeah, the showrooms are, they're great for photos, but you want to be able to, to be in it and you need to be comfortable. And that's not about turning into a different kind of person. Right. You know, there are types of people who can keep a place pristine and still live in it, those aren't the kind of people that call me up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't imagine how many more people are realizing that they want to make changes right now since it's so easy to avoid, you know, any problems that you have in your space when you can leave it. <laughs> leave it, right, yes. Oh, that's cool. So what's, okay, one last question. What's yes. your favorite space in your house and why? Oh, Probably my kitchen, which I'm in right now, and I will show you yes. why. Let me turn, let's see, can I turn the camera around? I don't think I, no, let's see. Aha, okay. I love your plants and that lamp. I love my plants too. I tried to make my kitchen into a rainforest. I just, I painted this mural I made this light fixture is not, it's very diffuse. You don't have any bulbs pointing down at you. So it's good for, you know, dinner parties where you don't want glare. And then I have artwork. I have plants and so plants, plants and more plants and more plants, more plants. It's almost enough plants. Well, not, it never is quite enough, <laughs> um, but I really wanted my kitchen to be like a rainforest and I'm always cultivating more plants. Wait, hold on a second. Let's see. I'm back. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm obsessed with cultivating the plants, but you know, I'm, I'm in the inner city, Philadelphia. Most of it is, is brick and, uh, concrete and I just I feel like I'm suffocating if I don't have a lot of plants growing around me so I just keep cultivating more I I believe it I was reading an article the other day about staying close to nature right now and especially if you live in the city and you can't get out and yeah I love love my plants I don't have as many I have some right outside this window like in window boxes and yeah I read something about listening to like bird and jungle sounds mm -hmm. and honestly it has made such a difference I found these like anxiety playlists on Spotify that are just rivers yes. of birds oh my gosh all day every day yes well 
we we evolved as part of nature. We need that. Our brains need that. And when we don't have that, you know, we tend to think of ourselves as just these these brains that are just floating around and just need to power through our situation, but we're not. We are part of the world and the world has a lot of life in it which is mutually supporting. So if you are taken out of that environment, your nervous system responds the same way that an animal does when it is put in the zoo from the wild. You become aggressive, you become depressed, you don't function properly because you've, you've been taken out of your habitat. And so that is why I call what I do the eccentric genius habitat intervention. Oh, I love it. I haven't heard you use that phrase before. You are an eccentric genius and your habitat needs an intervention. You need to be in the situation that supports the way your brain works. And that's yeah. what I help you do. I love it. I also love the name of your business, Practical Sanctuary, because that just sums it up really beautifully. Thank you. All right. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. I do. And thank you so much, Ashton. I love your questions. I love how well you observe and take things in. I really enjoy that about talking with you. Thank you. I really love talking to you too. I'm so glad that you joined us and people can find you at practicalsanctuary.com, right? That is right. Yes. And what on Instagram? Because I've seen your kitchen on Instagram too. So I'm sure people would like to look at yeah. it if they're listening. It's practical sanctuary on Instagram too. Okay, sweet. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Ashton. Thanks, guys.